0: Matt Goudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 463 you're listening to. My guest today is recording and mixing engineer as well as educator based in Munich, Germany. I'm talking about Mike Sr. You might know his name from Sound on Sound Magazine, where he's been a contributor for the last 20-plus years. He's done like 65 of those mix rescue columns. Uh, He's author of the books Mixing Secrets and Recording Secrets books. A link will be in the show notes for that. He's also hosted host of the web's largest free multi-track download library. Of course, I'll give you a link to that so you can check that out. So Mike's done a lot of writing, a lot of recording, and does a lot of remote recording, which we're going to talk about. He does a lot of uh, mixing from home, as many of us do these days. We're going to talk all about that and about his journey. Looking forward to it. Mike Sr. coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to talk you out of building a studio. Don't I say that with such enthusiasm? It's almost as if I don't want you to do it, right? <laughs> such a killjoy. No, seriously, I have good reasons for this. With any of the rants, remember, this is only my opinion. You could take me with a grain of salt, think I'm full of shit, and you know, point out things I'm missing, holes in my ideas here, whatever. This is only my opinion. Your mileage may vary. This is only based on my experiences. If you are thinking about getting yourself into a studio, meaning a commercial studio, building out a commercial studio in a rented building, a building you do not own, that's the crux of this whole conversation. Don't do it. Just don't do it. If you don't own the building, don't do it. If you're gonna do it, I hope you have some sweetheart deal that you just can't pass up and Maybe you've got a relative who owns the building, and maybe you don't own it, but they'll let you rent it from them for the next 99 years, I don't know. Unless you've got some insanely great deal, don't do it. Here's what could happen, and I know you can't base your life on what could happen, but seriously, this could happen. The landlord decides at the end of the lease, let's say it's a five-year lease, let's say it's a 10-year lease, let's say that you get settled in there for five years, you're rocking, Business is good and then the landlord shows up and says, hey, yeah, we're getting rid of the building and we're gonna sell it to a developer who's gonna build condos, so I can't renew your lease. Or I can renew your lease, but it's gonna be doubled or tripled or quadrupled because, hey, the neighborhood's grown and I've got a lot of offers. All of that could happen. And you say, well, none of that's gonna happen because I'm moving into a terrible neighborhood, (laughs) which, You know, I get people do that all the time. They move into like the worst neighborhoods. Not the greatest idea on the planet, but uh, yeah, that's a factor. But back to the landlord. Yeah, the landlord can really change your life and the landlord can die. That happens. And then the relatives come in and they look around and go, "Uh, I live out of state. I don't want to deal with this. Let's sell this. Let's get rid of the building. I'm sure there's an opportunity there for you to buy the building, but... You know, you don't want to be in this stressful position. So at the end of the day, what I'm telling you is, if you've never done it before, and there's many of you that have, so back me up on this, it's not easy running a studio. It has many, many challenges. You got any question about that? Go to the last episode and listen to Candace Stewart talk about running studios in L.A. So unless you've got Candace Stewart or Paula Salvatore at the helm running the studio for you, you might want to rethink this whole, I'm going to rent a building thing. No, buy a building if you can. And you might say, well, I've got all the money together to buy the gear and and do the build out. Well, what if you did this instead? What if you took that money and you put a down payment on a building and then you just dialed back your expectations on the gear? You know, maybe you don't need, you know, a $200,000 broadcast need that you found on Reverb. You know, maybe you don't. Maybe you can do it with different gear, and maybe it can be a co-op with you and other engineers. I don't know. Whatever you do, just try to buy the building. At the end of the day, don't rent the building. It's just it's it's a big gamble. It's a big, um, and I know you got to take risk. Blah blah blah. That's fine. But these are factors in the world we live in today that you know real estate moves. Real estate is moving all the time. It's shifting. The markets are changing around real estate so don't put yourself in that precarious position now if you are thinking about building a studio in your home and you own that home yes we're back to ownership go for it because that could be really cool and you know just to be clear when i set my studio up here at home and i use the term studio loosely because it's essentially it's a small room nicely decked out sounds good I didn't like put a room within a room. You know, you can hear the airplanes pass over, I can hear when the Amazon trucks are backing up in the front driveway, but I can turn stuff up, I can rock out, I can get stuff done, obviously not late at night, but it didn't cost that much to do. So if you're thinking about doing the studio thing at home, consider that as maybe a first step. If you really feel like you need isolation and you're gonna be tracking, you know, quiet violins or vocals, then sure, yeah. Unless you're going to be like converting a garage, um, I think you could get away with it and just not not go crazy. At the end of the day, here, folks, what I'm just trying to say is, I get it. We all have that. Not maybe not all of us, but many of us have that like dream of I want to build my own studio. I want to have my own studio. But when we don't control the building and we don't have favorable deals with landlords, it really can throw a curveball into the mix for us and turn our lives upside down and you really don't want to be in that position so take it slower build up some money and buy a building instead and think it through and you might say well okay i can't do that well my answer then is utilize the studios in your local area you know bring your business there mix stuff at home i've talked about having a rig at home having a setup at home try to do that now once again my opinion you're going to do what you're going to Want to do, and that's fine. No, no judgment, no criticism. I'm just telling you, based on my experience, and anything I would do moving forward, I would never set up a studio in a rental situation. Just wouldn't do it. Can't do it. So there it is. I wish you luck. You know, if you need me to talk you down from the ledge of jumping into a rental building, and you you want some other ideas, you can always email me. We could talk it through. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. I hate seeing people like get into these positions where they're five five years in ten years in and business is booming and then out of nowhere you know the lightning strike of the landlord comes down upon their head and then that's you know that's it then they've got to like find a new building set up you know a whole new operation and it just becomes a big scramble so um, yeah there you go that's my rant thanks for listening. ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Mike Sr. here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Mike, welcome to the podcast.
0: It's a delight to be here. One of my favorite podcasts, as I think you know.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Well, (laughs) a delight to have you here. I don't like to waste time, so I'm just going to jump right in. Where did you grow up?
0: Well, have you ever seen the UK version of The Office? I have. That's based in Slough, which is pretty much where I grew up. Really? Yeah. I mean, that town is fairly industrial, but I grew up in a little village not far from there between Slough and Maidenhead. I mean, as if anyone knows where those places are. Yeah. Grew up there with two brothers who are both older than me. I'm the youngest of the, the little one of the three, even though I'm now taller than them both, of course, which I take great delight in.
1: What did your parents do?
0: They were, I mean, my dad was a, basically a businessman. He'd studied physics at university. My mum had been well into drama. She was actually ballet dancing for a while. They met at Yale while my dad was kind of doing a postgraduate business thing and she was doing a drama course there. My mom's American. And so then they eventually ended up moving over to the UK and settled here.
1: As far as the upbringing, was there music in the house? Was, Was there any kind of, I like to ask about music, but I also like to ask about like any kind of influence of electronics, whether it be radios or any kind of thing like that.
0: Well, I mean, this is where I think I'm quite different than most of the people who end up on this podcast. So you'll have to forgive me going on a little bit of a left field here because I didn't really get into popular music at all until probably my early 20s. I'm entirely classically trained. And it's weird because, in a way, I, I never should have been a musician because neither of my brothers are. My parents weren't really musicians as such. I mean, they had a bit of musicality to them, Mm -hmm. but they didn't play instruments. We had a piano at home and they kind of carted us off to piano lessons. But the difference was that we happened to live about 15 minutes away from Windsor Castle. Mm. And in Windsor Castle, there's St. George's Chapel. If you saw like Harry and Meghan getting married, that was where they got married. And they have a boys choir and they were doing voice auditions. And my mum just had her ear to the, to the ground and realized they were doing voice auditions for seven-year-olds. And I turned up and basically got myself a place as a choir boy, unlike either of my brothers, which is one of these kind of crazy, like, Harry Potter things, because that was not the trajectory (laughs) I was heading on just in terms of where I was from. And all of a sudden, I found myself at a boarding school at the age of eight, doing, like, three and a half hours music a day, having to learn two instruments, doing, the musical people would say, eight shows a week. We were doing eight sung church services a week, even singing during holidays for like Christmas and Easter and stuff. And in addition, the choir school kind of education as well as treating you basically like a professional musician when you're nine it also is part of the private education system in the uk which as well has this kind of cachet to it you know you get much smaller class sizes better resources more highly paid teachers and everything so suddenly i found myself like catapulted into this incredible musical classical musical hothouse and getting this high-powered like private education and so that then turned me into a musician very quickly. And it became then something that I kind of identified as something that I had over my brothers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of invested in it as well. And you also, you know, when you're that age, you don't question stuff. It was a crazy lifestyle being at those choir schools. Getting up like at half past six in the morning to do a half an hour's instrumental practice before breakfast <laughs> was part of the school routine. Wow. And you, you don't, but you don't question it when you're surrounded by a bunch of other kids who are all doing the same. And so you kind of got fast-tracked into this thing. And then that then led into a whole, almost like a production line, or I don't know what you you call it, but this route of high-powered musical education in the classical field and also high-powered private education in a general sense. Because all the next level of schools, kind of like the high schools in America, but we call them public schools in the UK, but they're actually private schools, places like Eton College and places like this they all know that the people coming out of the choir schools are all these hothouse musicians, and so they're desperate to get them as their music scholars to improve the quality of their music too. So then I was able to get a music scholarship to Winchester College, which is one of the best private schools in the UK. I mean, Rishi Sunak went there. He was younger than I was. And so then the whole process kind of snowballed further. You know, I, was, I took up the viola as well. I was doing like five A-levels, planning to study pure chemistry at, at Oxford. That was where I was going to apply to. And then, around like fifteen or sixteen, up to that point, I'd not really had self determination, so to speak. I was just kind of dragged along in this incredible whirl of 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 hot housing.
1: I was going to ask, did you ever push back on this? I mean, this was your mom's idea initially. Mom's well, this idea is the thing.
0: I, I was a very, I was very willing to toe the line. My brothers were more rebellious than I was. Uh-huh. And I kind of again, I kind of defined myself a bit more as the person who does the correct thing and does the conventional route. And I, I know my brothers hated me for it, I'm sure. <laughs> I was always the kind of goody two shoes. But then when I got to about 15 or 16, several things happened at once that I had a kind of a mini emotional meltdown, really, at school. And it was firstly that I was just not saying no to anything. And if you take up the viola and you're doing like five A levels where most people are doing like three or four, you're just burning the candle at both ends anyway. So I was I was just shattered the whole time. On top of that, I went to do work experience in the anticipation of doing chemistry at university and was bored stiff and was like, am I really, this is really, really where I'm going to do my, my entire life's work. <laughs> and then on top of that, when I was 15, for three summers in a row, I went to the Tanglewood Festival. Don't know if you know Tanglewood? I don't. In the classical sphere, it's best known. There's a Tanglewood Festival. It's um, organized by Boston University in conjunction with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, where for like nine or 10 weeks in the summer, the Boston Symphony Orchestra have a residency in Lennox in Massachusetts in this lovely green area. But in tandem with that, they had this incredible educational program where loads of the best instrumentalists from all around the States, and me too, because I was able to get a scholarship to go there. Mm-hmm end up then doing like nine weeks of crazily intense music surrounded by all the top, top people in the classical world. I mean, we were like playing concertos with Yo-Yo Ma, having masterclasses with Itzhak Perlman and John Williams and people like this. It's just crazy wow. stuff. But you can imagine what that did to someone who's 15 or 16 a kind of an impressionable age. I was on fire with music then because of that. So then I come back to school and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and it all kind of unraveled. And so in the end, I completely changed tack and thought, well, I, clearly I want to be doing some kind of music. I don't really know what yet, but I don't feel qualified well enough yet because I've always been doing it as a hobby. And I'm, I'm at school with, again, ridiculously great music. The kind of people who hear something in their head and they just write it out on manuscript paper, just you kind of get an imposter syndrome about it. So I thought to myself, okay, if I'm going to do this music thing, the only way I know how to do it is to try and get the hardest of hard skills as a classical musician. So I switched tack and looked for a university course that had no performance in it at all and was all like harmony and counterpoint and advanced analysis and music cognition and stylistic composition, all this kind of stuff. And I found that at Cambridge University. And to be honest, kind of got in by the skin of my teeth. I don't know. I think the the guy who let me in kind of didn't know what he was letting himself in for. And all the stuff that I was supposed to be studying, as far as I was concerned, felt like magic to me. I did not know how the hell anyone was supposed to sit down in an exam room and in three hours write a four-part fugue of 80 bars without a piano. That was magic to me. But that was the, that's the stuff I wanted to know how to do because I thought that would be the thing that would enable me to do music. So that then took me into that sphere. And so I was like, yeah, I know what I'm doing now. But then as I began to get into that, and begin to get exposed to this very high-powered classical academia thing, and begin to look more closely into what... I mean, I was particularly looking at composition as a possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tanglewood had shown me that there were much better instrumentalists than me, and that if I was going to be that caliber of instrumentalist, I was going to have to sacrifice a lot that I didn't want to. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go into like music writing or composition in some kind of way. But at that time, it just felt like all the classical composition that you could do I had no interest in. I had no interest in, like, serialism. I had no interest in, like, I went to kind of see some of these modern classical concerts and they just left me cold because I liked Stravinsky and Shostakovich and all these kind of early 20th century composers. Like, no one was doing that. Incredibly unfashionable. It's like, well, how am I going to get anything played? How am I going to do anything? And that was the point at which I thought, okay, maybe I need to find some kind of a way that I can learn to produce my own music, so I can record it myself and produce it, and maybe I can create my own music in that kind of way. And that was where the tech started to come in. I'd had a brief introduction to, like, Notator on the Atari when I was at school, and that kind of alerted me that there was music technology out there that might be able to help me here. And just at the time when I was beginning university the first of those portable digital multi-trackers came out. Roland VS-880. And it was a godsend. I had student loans at the time to get through university as well as busking my little heart out. God, I did so much busking when I was at college. But then I used that money to buy myself a VS-880 and just learnt the thing back to front and upside down. And that was where I first began to think, okay, maybe this might be a way for This actually enables me to create music. And that's quite a good thing. But then it was like... You have your parents going, well, how exactly is this leading to any kind of meaningful employment? <laughs> so I was going, um, well, maybe I'll look at studio work. And <laughs> So I, you know, while I was still at university, you're sending out 200 letters. I mean, I tried to think what all these studio managers thought of some like Cambridge music student sending out letters to be their T-boy. But clearly one of them found it funny enough that they actually <laughs> invited me to come and do work experience. There was a place in uh, Wimbledon. I came along and did work experience for, and you know they clearly liked me enough to want to keep me around, so they started paying me to come and assist, so I got some work experience there. Then, after I'd graduated from my music course, I then went and did a, like, a music IT course at a university in London, uh-huh. which frankly didn't keep me hugely busy, and I was kind of just using it as an excuse to live in their halls of residence, turn up as little as I possibly could, and just spend the whole time going around London trying to get work experience. It almost seems like you're like
1: a little toy wind-up car at such a young age that your parents just kind of said,
0: Okay, go! And you just kept going. It's a little bit like that. But I honestly, I think the, the choir school is responsible for it. I mean, I remember when I eventually got out of the studio world, which again was ridiculous hours, ended up basically doing an office job at Sound on Sound. And I'd go there nine to five, and I remember after the first week thinking... Is that it? <laughs> it was like, it seems like I've hardly been there. And like, what am I going to do with this whole weekend and stuff?"
1: Oh, because you, you'd come from this whole background of, yeah, intensity for so many years, and then here you are at this nine-to five job. It's like, like what's going on? Yeah, let me get psychological on you for a minute. so yeah. Do you think, I mean, it sounds like, number one, on the positive side, it sounds like you got a fantastic education and a fantastic amount of training in music early on, but the level at which you did it, did it cause any post-traumatic stress or did it manifest itself later on in your life
0: where you're like, why am I like so intense? I think I was lucky. I saw a lot of people who it did cause them real problems. I mean, it's, it, essentially, the whole thing is a bit of a trial by fire mm. in that some people don't make it. And I saw people fall by the wayside who just couldn't take it for one reason or another. And I, I was lucky because I was the youngest brother. And as much as there was no love lost between me and my brothers a lot of the time, what they did do is they meant that I was able to stick up for myself. I would not take any shit. But there's a famous story in our family of some older kid who once came round to play at our house and tried to take some kind of stick off me that I was playing with, and I thwacked him with it. And he went crying to his mum, and his mum then complained to my mum, and she said, well, he's got two older brothers. What do you expect? Which I thought was very cool of her, but yeah, I mean, it's symptomatic of that. I mean, you could say that the real point at which I came up unstuck was at about 15, 16, because there, the wheels really did come off. I, I couldn't cope. Yeah, I was a wreck and really had to kind of pick up the pieces. I ended up actually taking a year off between that school and university, what they call a gap year in the UK, mm-hmm. just to kind of recalibrate and get some of the skills that I needed to apply for, for a music course, which I'm glad I did because otherwise there's absolutely no where I would have gone in. I mean, the first time I tried to get in, they pretty much laughed me out and said, no, i are not going to take you. You don't have the necessary skills. And so I took a year out, applied again, and just about managed to get in.
1: So, as you're sitting in the offices at Sound on Sound, was there any regret? Like, you have all this training and and this education.
0: Did this seem like a step down to you? It was a weird thing. The thing is, basically, by getting all that work experience in London, I was able to get a full-time in-house engineer's job at a residential studio in Milton Keynes. And there, again, I was burning the candle at both ends, but, and this is where, again, this takes another kind of left turn. I'm going to answer your question, but it's, again, I have to do it slightly <laughs> by the back door. When I was at university, in the first month of university, I met the lady who is now my wife. Mm. And when I was working at the studios, there was a significant risk of her becoming a studio widow, of basically she'd never saw me, and the occasional time I could get off, I just slept the whole time. So... Yeah, we hardly saw each other, and that, was, that, that wasn't going to go far if I stayed at the studio doing studio hours. And so there came a point where I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. This was my plan, and I can't do this because I would actually rather like to marry the lady who's become my wife. At the end of this year, this calendar year, if I haven't got another plan, I'm simply going to walk out the door and then just make it up as I go along. And then in that few months between me making that decision... I just happened to be on the studio office computer and I saw one of the only adverts that Sound on Sound have ever placed for a member of staff, which is for an assistant editor. And I looked at it and I thought, they're in Cambridge. That's exactly where Ruta is because she was still studying at university. Mm -hmm. That will be kind of convenient. And I turned up and they were like, oh, you're a professional engineer. Oh, you can write. Oh, you can edit. (laughs) That's super rare. It's quite rare that someone is musical and they're technical and they can write. I mean, it helps that basically when I was at the interview, they asked me what my salary expectations were, and I said honestly, I don't care. <laughs> All I'd need to do here is live, and so you can pay me whatever the hell you like, just because I need to move and this is a good place to be. So I ended up at Sound On Sound, kind of with a jolt. But that's the thing. You see, with that backstory, I kind of had stepped off the train. I didn't really know what I was stepping off into. But the reason I did it is because of a larger kind of family goal, so to speak. And then it was like, okay, I need to reassess and work out how do I pursue the things that I like doing and how do I bring all these weird different skills and influences and stuff that I have together into something that resembles some kind of career. How old were you then? It would have been 24, I think. 24. It was 1999. Wow.
1: Okay. And so... Fill this gap in for me because I'm I'm not yeah. I'm not piecing it together. The time spent at the studio, how long was that period? About a
0: year, I think, at the residential. Okay. And your role there was? Factotum. <laughs> Basically, whatever needed doing was what I would end up doing. And so if that was just making tea and moving these around, then that was what it was. If there wasn't an engineer, then I was engineering. Wow. I mean, it, it, in fact, my very first mixing job came from Honestly, the archetypal thing, where the band pissed off the mix engineer so much that he walked out and they had no more budget. So (laughs) they turned around and said, could you mix this? (laughs) And thankfully, they liked what I did. So yeah, it worked.
1: Wow. Okay. How long were you at Sound on Sound as the editor?
0: Well, I wasn't the figurehead editor. Right. Uh, I was one of their reviews editors for about five or six years. I mean, initially, I was the assistant editor, but very quickly became a reviews editor. But mostly, officially, that involved just commissioning articles, editing them, proofing them, getting them laid out, checking them over, and getting them out the door, and then dealing with all the industry contacts that you had to deal with in terms of that and planning the magazine. But everyone in the Sound on Sound office, and it's important to realise this about Sound on Sound, is actually a project studio musician. They all have their own little home setups. They all really live what they're doing mm-hmm. and what they're writing about. And so... Inevitably you then end up sharing ideas between each other. I set up my own little home studio setup and began kind of trying to make music again kind of on the side of my of my job. So it kind of began to grow into something that was more musical. And then, of course, I was doing it and I had these skills, these engineering skills, these musical skills. Then I was able to start writing stuff as well while I was still in the office. And so I ended up writing Q&A stuff and little technique features and notes columns for some of the sequences that I was using and yeah, bits and pieces like that. And then, of course, that moved on to, I was really, really keen that the magazine, when I was reviews editor, I was really pushing for them to introduce more audio. So I was like, it's daft that we're writing about, say, reverb and Why the hell should anyone trust that we know what we're talking about unless they can hear an example of what we've done with the reverb? So I was really, really pushing that sound on sound. And one of the things that I kind of commissioned as a result was the Mix Rescue column. Because I was like, okay, let's do a case study thing where we show actually what we've done and we prove that we can do it, basically. The problem with Mix Rescue, though, is that almost by nature, it's in the title, it's not an easy job and it's a monthly magazine. And if you've got a regular column where you have to do 12 not easy mixed jobs a year, it was a tough ask on the existing contributors. And so there came a point where the guy who was doing it mostly, who was actually editor at the time, um, Paul White, there was one of them where he, he wasn't making progress with it. He wasn't seeing eye to eye with the people. And I said, I think I might have an idea on this one. I think this might be more up my street. How about I give this a go and see whether I can make them happy with the version? And it worked. It, honestly, it wasn't the mix, best mix I've done in my life, but it got the job done. They were happy. All the audio examples were there. And I think then once Paul White and other contributors saw that, oh, we might be able to get him to take on Mix Rescue or some Mix Rescue stuff, then I began to do it more and more. Because they and didn't that want to do it. And then continued when I became a freelancer after that. Was that considered like a job that nobody wanted? A little bit. Not because it was a bad job, but just because it was a hard job. There's a, a lot of work involved in it and a lot of potential. It's a risky job. You can start doing a mix and then all of a sudden the people completely fall off the radar and you never hear from them again. Or there's always the risk that you might do a mix and they hate it. <laughs> that certainly happened to me. I've actually ended up having to do a mix twice because they hated it first time and then I realized why they hated it and redid it so that they liked it. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't really... Pay very well when you're being paid by the word rather than by the time you spend. So, how long did your gig there last? It was about five or six years. I was working in the editorial office. But because I know that office back to front and I know what they're looking for and how they operate, it was very easy for me then to transition after that into becoming one of their freelance authors. So, I've never really left. (laughs) I've been working for them for basically almost 25 years because. The writing is, for me, often this kind of background thing that whenever I have some downtime, I can always write an article. And because I know mostly what they want, it's very, very rare that they get back to me and say, no, we can't use this. In fact, it's almost unheard of.
1: While you're there and you're, you're writing, mm. did you continue to do any work outside in the studio? Because otherwise, would you not become
0: disconnected to some degree to what is actually happening in, in the industry? Well, the whole time I was doing that, I was doing a little bit of engineering, but mostly I was pursuing my own music in a totally round-the-houses kind of way. I mean, I basically spent 10 years doing an album (laughs) and getting hyper-perfectionist about every aspect of it. And yeah, it was a nightmare. But basically, that's where my energies went. And then in the purpose of doing that, of course, that involved me setting up a home studio and engaging with all the stuff that you have to deal with when you're not in a professional room. You know, this in a sense this is one of the big areas that the mixing secrets book came from was the fact that I had been mixing at this residential studio and was like I'm a hero this sounds great. And then I set up a project studio setup and I just I felt I couldn't mix my way out of a wet paper bag. I was like, what's happened here? What and that started this whole rabbit hole of how can I actually make the music I was working on sound like it competes and, and is reliable and dependable. And that led me down a whole rabbit hole that then, of course, in addition to the whole mix rescue side of it, those two things kind of came together into what ended up being the mixing book.
1: And that was all based on your experience or was any of that talking to other people or,
0: or a combination of the two? I did a series of articles for Sound on Sound where I went through their entire interview catalogue searching for recording techniques for specific instruments. Mm -hmm. Like, I went through and looked at what 50 or 60 producers did for electric guitar. Mm. Then I took all those ideas into the studio and mic'd them all up and tested them out so that you could compare them. Mm. And so it was this big kind of research task. And out of the back of that, I ended up with this huge database of interviews that I knew quite well. And so a lot of that material then also fed into Mixed Secrets. Because when I thought about doing the book, I thought, well, what does a book like this need? It's like, why should someone believe me? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I haven't mixed Beyonce. I mean, I've done mixed rescues, so they believe I've got skills. But what if they say, well, he has no credits, why should we believe him? It's like, okay, I'll go out and find 200 producers who are saying the things that I'm recommending you to do so that I can quote them. Right. And so that's where a lot of my kind of ideas and stuff came from was just a good old-fashioned research. I mean, I you know, I'm an academic in many respects, you know.
1: Right, right. And doesn't Bobby Osinski kind of, hasn't he done a lot of books in the same vein where not in the same topics per se, but just that same approach of, it's like you take the data of all whatever, the top yeah. 50 producer engineers out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, each of his books usually have a good dozen, 20-odd interviews in the back of them. And then he draws from those interviews for the book he writes. Yeah. Certainly, I I think I had some inspiration from that book and also from the Behind the Glass books, which I found fascinating.
1: This is all taking place in Cambridge in this time period.
0: Yes. We settled in Cambridge just after I left Sound on Sound. We had our first child. We have two daughters that were born quite close to each other in age. And so we settled down. We bought ourselves a house, got on the property ladder and started kind of Doing that up, <laughs> we both have a history of like house renovation in our in our family, so <laughs> yeah, it's in our blood. But but
1: she didn't stay there.
0: No, and again, you know, this is why my my life always seems to turn on sixpence. But Uta and I, this is my wife Uta, had had kind of decided because she's German and she's she was never bilingual, but she's a language specialist. She's. Oh, she's got a brain like a planet. She speaks like four different languages. She came to England as a German to study French and Russian from scratch at university at Cambridge. Whoa. She's just crazy. She ended up teaching in their faculty and stuff. But she was adamant that the kids should be bilingual, German and English. And we felt that it was unequal to have one parent, one language because the whole of the rest of the world was English when we were in in the UK. So we all spoke German at home and did German stuff at home. But my German isn't tremendously good. (laughs) And I think this was kind of niggling a bit with my wife. And we'd also, to be fair, we'd also thought, well, there's nothing really nailing us down to Cambridge now that I'm a freelancer. Wouldn't it be fun, actually, to try seeing whether Germany might be a nice place to live? And then a job came up that, as the head of a translation department at a big insurance company here in Munich, And UTA applied, and three months later, there we are in in Munich. It was good timing, too, actually, because my last real contract work had finished by that point, and I was entirely freelance. I do most of my work, at least, remotely. You know this yourself. You have kind of a local network, without which you can't do any kind of local recording or anything. So I lost all of that. That took me a couple of years to build back up in Germany. But oh, all the mixing stuff and the writing stuff, I could take that with me. And that, and that was a godsend in that respect.
1: So you maintained a home studio then?
0: Oh, very much. Okay, yeah. Ever okay. since, ever since I, I was at Sound On Sound, I've had a home studio. And it's moved through various bedrooms and basements and things. I'm, I'm now in the basement of our current house.
1: So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. How long did it take you to get up and running to get some clients in Germany?
0: Mixing straight away. I was already mixing and doing remote mixing straight away. Yeah. I mean, I had been the whole time and that's easy to do remotely. Recording wise, it took me about, I think my first recording job in Germany was about 18 months after I arrived. No, in fact, the first session I did was was in English with a guy who was doing like a prog rock album. But that one session pretty much led to all the other recording work I ended up doing in Germany. It was a kind of big stylistic changes. Well, I was doing all indie bands and like grimy UK hip hop stuff when I was in the UK. And then all of a sudden I get to Germany. I do this kind of prog rock record. And the guy in whose house we were doing this rock record overheard what was going on and said, oh, do you want to record my band? And that was a kind of a jazz come covers come seasonal band that had eight people in it, all of whom were in multiple other bands. And we did this crazy live recording session where we did like two whole albums in about five days on location. And then I ended up doing loads of like acoustic and jazz and kind of much smoother and acoustic stuff. So I kind of changed direction, but I kind of enjoyed doing it.
1: When you met your wife, did she speak English?
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think she's pretty much always sp- spoken English, probably better than I do. <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: So you, she kind of brought you along and taught you German as time went along. Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I started doing my GCSE German and I'd started doing my A level German at night classes before my first daughter was born, and then that all went out the window. Yeah, I've I kind of picked it up as you have to. I mean, my German is. I wouldn't say it's uh, elegant, but it's functional enough that I can now run a recording session. And I could, within a couple of years of coming here, I was able to run a recording session.
1: And were you you mentioned doing a remote session. Were you mostly doing remote recording or were you doing it at, at any studios?
0: Yeah. I mean, my, my kind of model, if anyone's read any of my books, <laughs> I don't write my books as some kind of a theoretical exercise. I write them because that's my life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I don't have a recording space here at all. I mix in my basement. And I have all my recording gear in boxes and bags and things. And so if I meet a band or someone I want to record, we find some venue. It might be a, a school hall. It might be a theater. It might be a rehearsal room or whatever. One was a converted pub. <laughs> I go there and I build a studio with my gear, record in the way you would in an ordinary kind of studio environment, pack it all up and back into the car and then mix it at home. So that's, that's been my model. I have a few connections now with commercial studios, and I've done a few sessions then in local commercial studios as well. But my normal way of doing things, and in a sense, I think a slightly more fun way of doing things is this slightly build-it-as-you-go-along. Yeah, it's an exciting way to work. I do like recording a lot.
1: So I don't like to get into the, the rabbit hole of the gear discussion, but in essence, give me a broad overview of what you've built your, we'll say, your remote rig out of what is that focused on in terms of
0: DAW computer my whole kind of recording of mixing philosophy mm-hmm. is that I for the most part spend money on things that touch the air so I don't have any analog desks or gear or compressors or any of that kind of stuff I have speakers I have acoustic treatment I have microphones I have cables and stands and when I record I just put mics up for the most part. And then run them all into an interface. And then obviously I'd do them on mix and whatever. I do all my work in Reaper, uh-huh. as you know, have, have for like 15 years or so. But basically I have a laptop with a, a MADI interface and then it goes to a 32 in, 32 out AD converter thing. Yeah. And that's, that's basically the whole, the whole deal.
1: And that's got mic pre's in, in it?
0: Oh uh, No, I have separate mic pre's, oh, but okay. they're just, they're just mic pre's. There's nothing special, either some Audient ones, or sometimes I've used the ones on a a Mackie desk I have if I run out of pre's. There's nothing. I don't have anything esoteric at all. I'm very much a, a project studio guy. And in fact, this is something that in more recent years, as I've begun to accumulate more stuff and had the opportunity to go, okay, shall I get some better gear? I've kind of resisted it because I think if I do, I become less relevant. Really good microphones make life a lot easier. Oh, yeah. than your standard Project Studio microphones, for example. And so I, I'm kind of quite keen to not lose my edge in that respect and, and actually be representative.
1: When you go to a, a remote recording gig, typically how many channels of recording are you toting along with you?
0: I've certainly done plenty of 32-channel things. Oh, wow. Okay. A good example is that jazz session that I did, the first big session I did when I came here. That was a situation where you had four singers and four instrumentalists who wanted to perform all at once. Mm -hmm. And they had multiple different instruments and they were switching instruments and stuff. So I basically tried to do the the kind of Daniel Lanois stations thing of putting all the mics up on everything so that at any point they could switch instruments and it would just be a question of which channels I I used and which activated so that we could move really quickly. I'm a big fan of trying to move quickly when I'm recording, if I can. And
1: these are places where you can leave your stuff set up for like a couple of days.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's usually again, this is it's all projects to your stuff. It's like there'll be a like a bank holiday weekend, like a long weekend, where you've got a three-day weekend. And so maybe one of them's working at some place where there's a warehouse that's not being used. So he clears it with the boss and we all move into the warehouse for the weekend, set up everything. Or a situation where um in fact that same band that I was talking about earlier, the the jazz band, they managed to get a local educational come theater complex. And in the main auditorium, they weren't using it for a week during the holidays. I don't know how they arranged it. I think maybe one of them had some connection, but we all moved into this place and I set them up on the the theater stage. And then we had to find a control room backstage somewhere and build. Yeah. You just build everything wherever you find it.
1: I find the, the remote recording thing. I do like it, but unless you have an assistant with you it's kind of a giant pain in the ass because there's just so much stuff you got to set up and create from scratch. Do you have ways in which you get around that or speed that process?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I don't use any outboard or anything like that. That's why I use just mics because anything else would be too time-consuming. Yeah. You know, I've just got used to that concept of, Trying to get the sound out of the mics and out of the instruments and trying to do it all in the room rather than anything going on in the control room. Yeah. I mean, inevitably, there's a bit of head scratching. I often also, there are people who like to watch me work, students and things. And so if I know there's a big session coming up, I'll just put the word out and say, look, if anyone wants to kind of tag along and help me set stuff up, and obviously they'll be moving mics around and hearing what's going on, then yeah, I've, I've tried to take advantage of that where I can. But yeah, as a self op person, I try to keep things as streamlined as possible in terms of how I do things. I have a little hardware fader controller for that when I'm working live, again, because you can't be faffing around with a mouse across 32 channels. (laughs) You've got to (laughs) have faders and mutes and and polarity buttons and stuff, you know.
1: But I think what I find to be the biggest pain in the ass is is the mic stands. Because, (laughs) like, so what do you do to tackle that? Do you just have a giant box of
0: mic stands? I have two big bags of mic stands. I have about, in all, probably about 20 mic stands. But again, this is the whole network thing. This is why I said I couldn't record for a couple of years, because the way I do recordings is that I'm part of a scene. I'm part of a group of people. You know, I know lots of other engineers. So whenever one of us has a big session, there are a half a dozen people I can ring up and go, you know, I lent you that stereo pair of small from condensers the other day i don't suppose you have a loom and about five mic cables and a couple of mic stands or do you have a big cathedral stand or something and you build this much bigger system out of the goodwill that you get from from being part of a scene and so i don't need to have as many mic stands as i as i actually need on a huge session because you know the band will have some the band will have some cables i mean most musicians have some of this kind of stuff obviously there's some like logistics in organizing it all but yeah that's the way I deal with it. And in terms of setting them up, I wear gloves. That's a really big thing. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah, I wear those little kind of uh, rubber-palmed gloves because I've pinched my fingers too many times in a mic stand ever to do it again. And it means that I can set them up super tight if I need to and yeah, do things quickly.
1: So if there's one thing that comes out of this interview, it's the gloves. It's the gloves. You'll always see me with gloves on when I'm recording. <laughs> Yeah, I would assume that I do it so infrequently the remote recording thing that, and I'm sure that over time, as you've done it, you've really kind of tightened the ship up, so to speak. You've you've really dialed it in, so it's not like, okay, now what am I doing? How is this all connected? <laughs> I haven't seen this ship for six months.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, with COVID, punched a huge hole in that whole recording stuff. So yeah, I'm super rusty these days. Yeah, and not
1: to, I'm not giving these. Guys, it's not meant to give them a a product placement here, but I have to say, one of the products I discovered, I was doing a a 20-piece big band remote recording thing and discovered the radial catapult system. It was like four four channels of audio traveling over Cat 6. And uh, Ah. wow, what a great thing. Super quiet, very streamlined, just really saved me on that. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that because I think that that's a cool product to be using for that type of thing. So it's interesting. You've not taken such a traditional
0: studio path. Although it's weird. You say that I didn't have a traditional studio path, but I did actually do the T-boy to tape up to engineer thing in a kind of compressed form. And I actually feel really privileged to have had that in what was at the time quite an anachronistic thing. You know, a loads of studios have been shutting down and stuff. Yeah. And again, this is part of the reason why I ended up writing the recording book was because I felt people don't get that opportunity anymore to like apprentice. Yeah,
1: I am incorrect there. I mean you did do it and you did do it in a condensed time frame.
0: It was condensed though, to be fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and in some respects that's right in line with the intensity of your early schooling and training there. In this day and age, you're doing remote recording, you're doing mixing, and you continue to write. And I will put a link in the show notes to either a primary link or several links to the books you've written. Do you feel like with the books and the recording and the cost of living of where you're at, do you feel like you're surviving?
0: Yes. And I think... The whole work-life balance thing, and in a sense, you have to look at it also as a family thing. I mean, my wife has already always had a much more secure job than I have. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of managed that between us in terms of, we can guarantee we're going to get income from my wife, and my income will never be as stable as my wife's, although it's reasonably stable because I get things like book royalties fairly regularly, and I have like subscription services and things. but you know, we've had to navigate the issue of like, how we deal with childcare and, and how we deal with our lives in terms of me being much more flexible and yet less reliable and her being less flexible and more reliable financially speaking. Yeah. I mean, I think at the moment we're doing perfectly well for ourselves. And thankfully I always have more things that I could do than I'm actually able to do. I run out of time more than I run out of things to do. I'm, <laughs> I'm in a sense almost too diversified. <laughs>
1: Now, tell me about where you live in in Munich in terms of just like pricing yourself. Yeah. Did you find that in your experience, because you've probably been there for a number of years, so maybe you've lost a little perspective on this, but the rates at what engineers charge in the UK versus in Germany, is it that far off?
0: I mean, from a comparative perspective, I don't think I ever really judged anything about what other engineers were making. It was more like I'd set a rate and see whether I could get away with it. Uh-huh. And then if I got more work that I could handle at that rate, then I'd go, oh, that's probably a sign I should put my rates up. Right. Some of the other people on your show have talked about this as well. Björgvin talked about this. It's like I've had the ability because I do so many different things that I can often kind of do deals with potential recording and mixing clients mm-hmm. where I can say, okay, this is actually quite an interesting mix. I think I might be able to make an article or a video or something out of this. I can cut you a deal on that because Mm. I'm going to get some revenue from that stream as well as charging you a certain amount of the rate that I would have charged you anyway. And, And it's the same with recording sessions. A lot of the recording sessions I've done, I've then ended up turning into videos or articles or whatever else. So it all feeds into itself.
1: And that's an important thing that you just mentioned there that anybody that listens to this show knows I'm like the guy that always talks diversification and you are doing it in so many different ways. You've got these different income streams.
0: Yeah. And I mean, thank God when COVID came. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were so many of the people I knew who suddenly just had no career anymore. (laughs) They were like doing choir direction and musical theater and music direction and live sound. It's like, okay, well, there goes my entire career. Whereas my recording world died. But you know, I could still mix stuff. I could still write. I could still do like tutorial stuff. I still had book royalties coming in. You know, people started reading more books. It was like, okay, great. I didn't want this to be the reason why I earned a bit more money from my books this year. But being diversified gives you a certain amount of robustness. I mean, it always keeps you on your toes because you never know when something's going to fall over. The more things you have going on, the more likely it is that one of those things is going to fall over. Like recently, SOS, Sound or Sound, rejigged the whole magazine layout. And my three regular columns, Mixed Review, Mixed Rescue, and Session Notes, all got cut at the same time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to work out a whole new set of different articles that I can write for Sound on Sound if I'm going to do that now.
1: Wow. Well, it insulates you, it protects you, it gives you mm. some choices, but it's also, it's a juggling game too. I think you might agree that you could get involved in something and think, okay, well, I I should be doing this right now. And then another opportunity comes along and you're like, ah, crap, I'm kind of pressed on time for this, but I really want to do it. Is that a a source of frustration for you?
0: Oh, it's a constant thing. I mean, I kind of feel like the story of my life is trying 10 things and about two of them working or turning into anything useful. A classic example is the podcast that I name-checked you on is now defunct. And that was something that I tried and gave it a good bash for like four or five years and thought, this isn't going anywhere (laughs) and it's just taking a huge amount of my time. And so I've got to finish it before I end up hating it. And honestly, i mean—the the wastebasket of all the things that haven't worked is so much more than the stuff that has. You're constantly trying new things and then, I don't know, you don't have time for them or they don't turn out to be any good or oh, you're not yeah. qualified or whatever it is. But it's easy to look from the outside and see the things that I have built. I've just done things every week for like 10 years and all of a sudden you've got this pile of stuff. But the bunch of stuff that is all detritus, is all rubbish. Yeah. You don't see that. You only see the stuff that, that is actually there. I don't it's a bit misleading. Makes me look more successful than I am. <laughs> I think it's important though,
1: to just try shit like that, to just throw oh, caution yeah. to the wind. And that's what I did with this podcast. I was just like, well, I'm just gonna give this a shot and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Almost 10 years later, it's, it's, it's worked out, you know, to some degree. <laughs> Random question, cause I'm just looking at some of the details that you sent me. Where do you get, and I'd be shocked if you told me you provided it all, but for the web's largest free multitrack download library, where does all that material come from?
0: Oh, okay. Good question. The first multi tracks I set up because I couldn't believe no one had done it before. And I was, at that time I was doing a bit of teaching and I was desperate for practice material for the kids. Mm. So I just kind of started it. And because I was doing quite a lot of recording then and was doing mixed rescue projects the whole time, I was doing a lot of work for SOS. Most of those people kind of owed me a favor because mm-hmm. they were getting a deal, because they were going with the magazine. I said, do you mind if I use some of the stuff? So I was able to populate it. And I think just by getting the ball rolling, then I started to get people going, you know, actually, it's partly because I set up a forum where people could then post mixes and compare them and stuff. And I think the band started to see that when they... Put a multi-track in the library. They suddenly had like 200 mixes of it by Project Studio people, and they were like, "That's actually quite cool. I quite like this." And they were getting publicity from it. That web page is very popular, and so most of the multi-tracks I get now, I get approached with. People come to me and say, "Look, we'd like to be in the library. We've got this." track or whatever else and then I mean I, I have the requirement of a certain amount of quality control in that I do personally vet all the stuff and make sure it's formatted and it's a bit of a time suck but it means that everything in the, in the library is very consistent and it's there are no dead links and there's always a preview mix and there's always a forum for posting your mixes and you know you just do that every month for 10 years with two or three multitracks a, a month and all of a sudden you're at 600 multitracks which is oh, yeah. crazy <laughs> to me now, that there's that much stuff on the web.
1: Yeah, it is crazy when you when you get into the habit of doing something like that, and then it just like several years passes.
0: What's like you? You're you're like episode 470. I don't know what it is now.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're like in the 460 area as of this recording. It's crazy. Oh, I know. Well, and I'm I'm in the process of trying to tidy up my credits with muso.ai i'm giving them my money and constantly sending them like new lists of like add this subtract you know Mm. modify this and i think okay that's good i'm done and then i realize oh wait i'm missing like 10 other records (laughs) and i go back and i find it all and send it to them. and you go back and you're like
0: wow i've kind of been doing this a little too long in a good way yeah it's a real sense of achievement when you look back on it that you didn't realise what you were building while you were building it, and then you just took the next step that next day... And then you look back and, and you've got this big pile of stuff. It's like um, 60 mixed rescues or like I've done 600 mixed review critiques or I like all those multi-tracks as well. And you go, oh, oh I suppose I have done that then <laughs> or 80 podcast episodes or whatever, you know?
1: Well, let me ask you this. So you had all this musical training and all this time spent with your education and you've done a lot of writing, you've done some books and you continue to record. Where have you learned your business experience? Where did you, where did that business experience come from, and has it been a work in progress over the years?
0: I don't know. I'm I'm not convinced I'm that good a businessman, frankly. Mm. Probably the best thing I do is just make sure that I try and connect everything I do as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. That it's difficult to engage with one element of what I do without it connecting you in some way to another. If you end up in the multi-track library, you'll find that the listings have links to my podcasts that are on my Patreon page, or they'll have links to my Sound on Sound articles or to some article I've written or or some video I've done. And it's kind of all interconnected. And, you know, every article I write, I'll have some link or something to something that's on my site to kind of increase that linkage. But, I mean, I hate all the kind of sales copy stuff. I'm a classic Brit in that I hate selling things. It's like, (laughs) ah, it's the worst thing in the world is writing sales copy. I hate selling things in a general sense. And so I'm always trying to kind of soft sell to get myself out of the obligation of actually having to go to people and say, buy my stuff. Right. Yeah. and, And I'm not sure I manage that tremendously well. Probably the best thing I do from a business perspective is keep my overheads low. I keep a pretty no frills thing going in terms of my studio setup. I don't buy expensive gear. Yeah, I've got the same computer I've had for 13 years. I really must get a new one. But
1: In in essence, and I'll just be a very typical American in this way, you're creating a brand. (laughs) It's the brand of Mike Sr. and I think that is fair. And it's an ecosystem of different parts of you.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I do have a kind of a brand. I'm, I'm a little bit more... A little bit more technical than a lot of the people who are doing, like, tuition stuff. I'm not as entry-level as some of the, the educational places that there are. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to write more in-depth, more slow stuff. I don't do, like, social media at all, where a lot of people are very heavy on that. I focus on my site instead.
1: That must take great resistance to do that.
0: I don't know. And I'll tell you why it doesn't take great resistance. And this comes back, if you'll cast your mind back, dear listener, to the days of MySpace. Now, back in the days of MySpace, (laughs) that was when I was trying to do my own music. And I set myself up a MySpace page and I put some effort into it and put myself up on MySpace. And I was really proud of myself because I wasn't that good at it. (laughs) And I, I got up there, I had some artwork and stuff. And then from one day to the next, MySpace just took my whole page down. And I don't know why. I never could never get to the bottom of it. It just disappeared. And at that point I said to myself, okay if I ever put anything on anyone else's platform, they can do this to me. And I can't write 600 mixed critiques on any platform that could turn around and tell me that I can't use them anymore or tell me that I can't format them or can't Mm. access them or whatever that again. The stuff that I do in my life is so incremental and it builds in such a slow way, I can't be on someone else's platform. So my approach has been, okay. rather than spend the time on Going out and creating froth to publicise all my stuff on on social media. I mean, admittedly, not all social media is like that. But creating stuff that will inevitably disappear, evaporate in the noise. Yeah. I'll have my own site, and I'll slowly build something of real consequence, and then let other people talk about it, and have actual control over it. Yeah. You know, I've, it means that my multitrack site, I don't ask people to register. Honestly, I have a little the little cookie pop up, but I don't even store people's cookies for my site. Right, They just come, they use the stuff. It's what I wanted the library to be, was to be the quickest way you can possibly get to educational materials for students and teachers because I knew what a nightmare it was trying to get that stuff back when I was teaching like two decades ago, briefly, no, 15 years ago rather. And I can do that because I don't have to put up with what the platform says I need to do. I can make it as boring and functional and no pop-up windows and elegant and seriously quick to load. And I can do all that stuff because I'm not beholden to them. And then I don't have to search the web very far to see thousands of people going, oh, check out the Cambridge MT multitrack library. In a sense, they do my social media for me in that respect. I mean, to be absolutely honest... It's also a bit of a cop-out on my part, because I know uh, if I did more social media, probably I'd get more traffic and more sales and all this kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. oh, I just I can't face the thought of putting real effort into any of those sites and it dying. That injures my soul. <laughs> I just put too much effort into the stuff that I create to let it just evaporate.
1: I look at it as, like, in particularly Instagram, I look at it as like a billboard. It's essentially, I'm yeah. going to throw something up to draw attention to this other thing over here. But I hear you. I mean, you put effort into something and then boom. All these people yeah. that put all this effort into YouTube, it's like, hopefully YouTube <laughs> doesn't screw them all yeah. and change things up to a point where it it challenges their livelihood. But that's that's legit. I get it. And that's a fair point.
0: And it's the time thing as well. It's like, I could spend a lot of time transferring all my posts and kind of shouting about them through some kind of distributor thing and, and dealing with all of that. But God, my life's full enough of HTML code and Back ends of platforms and things without even with just with Patreon, it's just like, God, i more updates, more web stuff, less of actually doing stuff involving music. I mean, I fundamentally, I'm a musician. I got into this because I wanted to create music. And it's like the more you go into all the social media stuff, it feels like it sucks your lifeblood out. Maybe that's me. I'm, I'm over sensitive, perhaps, or over British.
1: <laughs> will you ever return to the UK to live?
0: I, in fact, it's looking increasingly likely that I will in fact possibly within the next couple of years and the reason being that my daughters are both now late teenagers and one of them's already studying in the UK and the other one is planning to study in the UK next year so if we want to be around where the kids are then i think probably my wife and i will actually move back to the UK in the next couple of years but i don't know my my life has been so up in the air and there's been so many like left turns in it that I'm honestly not planning beyond about six months from now. I yeah. mean, I, I heard a quote the other day. It's like, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. And my life feels like that. Hmm. I'm expecting to launch a course. And then all of a sudden, our tenants in the UK turn the house into a cannabis farm and I have to spend a month rebuilding the house. Right. <laughs> it's like, that's my life. or the, Or one of the kids decides they need to do some kind of audition or something. And I've like, okay, well, let's put together a backing track. Let's get you sorted out. Yeah.
1: You kept the house in the UK?
0: We did. Yes. Smart move. Smart move. Yeah. It wasn't easy to do that. It stretched us, but we knew that where we'd got our house was a good spot. Cambridge is a very hot property spot. Yeah. And we got lucky, to be honest. We got a house at the last time we could afford it. It's kind of classic worst house on the street thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And managed to keep hold of it by our fingernails. And yeah, that was a definitely a good thing. Obviously, it'll be easier than coming back to the UK if we've got a place that we can move back into.
1: You'll have to set up a whole new studio.
0: I will do. I will do. <laughs> Although it'll be in the place where I set up the old studio, to be fair.
1: That's true. That's true. Sounds like we have kids around close to the same age. All right. Okay. You know, I'm looking ahead at when the kids are out of the house and... We've been like toying with the idea of leaving Northern California and going down to Southern California, uh, okay. where where I'd be a lot closer to the action down there. And I don't yeah, know, kind yeah. of. I've been here for so long; it seems unthinkable. But well, North- it's so
0: difficult because it's. I mean, certainly in my world, for anything to do with recording or music, it's it's so network based, and that's so local. It's like twenty square miles of here is everyone I know who plays music and records things. Yeah. You know? Well, my my
1: network in LA has grown pretty broad over the years and it keeps growing, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're Mr. Networking with the podcast and all the shows and things, yeah. Yeah, That that helps.
1: But yeah, exciting times ahead. Well, there's going to be numerous links in the show notes everybody. I know that for some of my younger listeners, some of my uh, students that listen at, at the various universities around the world, definitely will put a link to your multi-tracks because I think wonderful that'll be great. And all the rest of it too, we got to get it all in there. So, well, Mike, thank you so much for making time for me. I'm really glad that I could finally get you on and, and we can make this happen.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. An honor, in fact, to be on the Working Glass Audio podcast. Well,
1: thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care. Our friends over at Kali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for Mike Sr. here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Before you go, head on over there to your podcast aggregator. Leave a five-star review if you like what's going on here and make sure and tell a friend. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Poole on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn and feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss,